0: back smart firefighting world today we're going to hear from steven kerber who's the vice president of research at underwriter laboratories also known as ul we're going to break down some of these deep-rooted fire science fire service myths that exist and why the always and never doesn't really apply with fire it always depends we need to have context and really consider the cause and effect relationships before taking action so we're going to break down the, the the concepts putting wet stuff on the red stuff, venting equals cooling, always attack the burning building from the unburned side, uh, Do when sprinklers go off, do they all go off, and sprinklers destroying property, and then the concept of fire discriminating or not. You're going to hear some great context from Stephen. I learned a lot. I know you will as well, and I hope you enjoy listening. Stephen Kerber, welcome back to the Smart Firefighting Podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: We've talked a lot about fire service, technology, and, and everything from A to Z. But one thing that was really interesting the other day was talking about some of these deep-rooted fire service myths or these deep-rooted thoughts that some people just maybe believe without maybe providing or thinking through the context. And, and with all your background in the fire service and, and, and fire engineering I wanted to break down some of these fire fire myths with you today. Um, and, and a few that I know that, that uh, are very relevant to our audience. Um, we'll start off with one is this concept of putting the wet stuff on the red stuff. It seems like it's just, Hey, I got a fire hose and I got water and there's a fire. When you hear that phrase, what is, what does that mean to you? And, and, and how should we evaluate it? Yeah. So, so
1: first I, I mean, we study the fire service as a job. So we know that everything in the firefighting is about context. And I mean, we see it on the internet every day, right? Where you, you pull up uh, any video and people are arguing left and right about whether they did the right thing, they did the wrong thing. Uh, but you got one point of view, you don't have the full context of what's going on. And that leads to really some interesting debates and some uh, certainly heated debates but what, what it comes down to is that everything about firefighting is pretty complex. So to make these simplifying sweeping statements can be a challenge. It can even be dangerous. Um, the first one you brought up, putting the wet stuff on the red stuff, I mean, we, we found this quite possibly could be one of the most dangerous sweeping statements that's out there. Um, with today's fires and how they're ventilation limited or they're starved for oxygen, the moment those firefighters go through that door in, to enter the building, in many cases, it's blacked out. They can't see anything. So if they're waiting until they see red to open up their hose line, it's possible that they could die and never see red because the fire could actually light up behind them and, and burn at the door and conditions would go horribly wrong for them very quickly and uh, we've had firefighters that have died on a nozzle um, without opening that nozzle up and it could be because
0: they never saw fire but the conditions were severe enough to kill them And I, I before that you mentioned that that always or never is, is a good thing to to consider here where because the fire service is complex and, and the stuff that we're the stuff that's getting on fire has so many different chemical properties and the environments that are created create all these variables that are hard to measure. And I and I know a lot of the work that you do at UL, it's you're you're kind of pushing the boundaries on when should should we do take action to put to put water or a, a surfactant, you know, from a building safety standpoint. And so it seems like from that phrase of putting wet stuff and the red stuff, while it may seem like a common concept where, you know, you see when you're just an average citizen, you see a firefighter with their hose putting out a fire. Yes, that makes sense in some situations, but it does seem like just due to the wide range of variables, we can't just say you see a fire, put water on it.
1: Sometimes you can. And that's why always and never are just too strong of a statement that it's very important that the fire service understands the cause and effect relationship of their tactics. I mean, they're there with a very specific strategy and, and mission to accomplish, uh, led by life safety of, of the public and themselves. So while some fires might be straightforward, uh, it, in many cases, we're, our research shows that the a straightforward approach of putting water through a window that has fire coming out of it could be a very effective tactic to utilize, depending on the scenario. Uh, w- where could the people be? Where is the fire? Where is your access point? Uh, what is the distance between the, the apparatus or the hose line and where that fire is? There's so many things to consider there. Um, but yeah, the smartest might be put the wet stuff on the red stuff or orange stuff or yellow stuff or whatever whatever it is at that, that given moment. Um, in other cases, that could be a, a very poor choice. Yep. So it could delay getting water to the fire that could ultimately impact people's lives.
0: And I like that point you made of the, really considering the cause and effect relationship before taking action. And that comes from experience and that comes from training and it comes from really thinking about the situation before just assuming that this is the right thing. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And I want to maybe parlay this into the next one of a phrase that I've seen a lot on Reddit and blogs is the venting equals cooling. When you hear that, what do you, what do what, uh, what's <laughs> how's your knee jerk there?
1: It, it scares the hell out of me, uh, to be honest. Um, and I think that, I mean, a statement like that could come from uh I don't say the, the the olden days. I mean the, the days when you have a a fuel limited fire or a fire that is only as big as the fuel that it has available to it. And any venting will only let bad stuff out. That's not the case anymore. It rarely is that the case anymore. Today, what we have are ventilation limited fires, which means the size of that fire is limited by the amount of oxygen that it is available. So if you've got fire burning out of a window, that means the reason that fire is at that window is because that's where the fuel is meeting the oxygen to burn. If you were superhuman and you could go through that fire into that room, That room would be hot and full of unburned fuel or gases that have pyrolyzed off of all the contents in the room and can't burn because it's too fuel rich and hasn't found the oxygen yet. So if you go ahead and make an additional opening in that scenario, physically, the fire can only get larger. And that's the scenario many of our firefighters find themselves in today is you're in these uh, very fuel-rich environments, where there's pretty much two, two things you can do. If it, venting is going to make the fire larger. However, if you put water on the fire or limit the ventilation, you're controlling the size of the fire. So it's all about coordination, which is why a lot of our projects recently have, have all been about how what is optimal coordination? How do you combine Water application with ventilation to lead to the best possible outcome for people that are trapped in the house or structure. And we see time and time again that water on the fire, once you have water on the fire and you're controlling the size of the fire and making it smaller, in that case, you want to vent your heart out. I mean, you want to get that smoke out of that structure as quickly as possible to maximize the survivable space in the structure. If your ventilation gets ahead of your suppression, you could kill people. I mean, you, you can make those conditions worse. And we see it time and time again. Um, I mean, there was an incident recently in California where the, the firefighters were not making progress on the fire. They held their position, waited for ventilation. In this case, it was vertical ventilation in addition to the horizontal that had already been created. And actually opening up that vertical vent burned the firefighters and chased them out. It, it provided the opposite effect that they thought it was going to, back to that cause and effect relationship. And so I'm gonna stay here because I think if I can just get some vertical ventilation, we'll be able to move in and everything knowing fire dynamics, everything pointed to the opposite of that outcome. So um, there's still a lot to learn. There's a lot of dots to connect, but that's really what it comes down to.
0: And I like how you phrase it of what is that optimal coordination for the best outcome? And it, it does seem to be a balance. That, and I heard in COVID, there was that, that hammer and dance where you, 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 <laughs> you, want it to, you want the end goal and you want it to get there, but it, it isn't a straight path. It's a little bit of a meandering river to get there. And I think it's, just, it, it's a little bit of a patience, but it's also some of that sense-making to know that no two situations are exactly the same. And, and I get, you know, I'd i be interested in knowing from you about how do, you, how do we improve that decision-making to just think more as opposed to just <laughs> assuming?
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, it comes down to thinking. I mean, it be, comes down to educating the firefighters, from the get go. And I think one one of the most important things we can educate them on is their enemy is fire. And forever fire dynamics is rarely a um, important component of firefighter training. It's, I think, long been replaced with how do you do it? Or what do you want me to do? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And what that leads to is, well, you're going to go do it based on a set of guardrails that you're assuming came from your instructor. But if your instructor doesn't assume and pass along the why, so you know what those guardrails are, then you're going to make that decision all the time, even if it's outside of the guardrails. And if the instructor might be like, what the heck did you do that for? What? Why did you put the wet stuff on the red stuff? It's like, well, you told me to always do that. It's like, well, no, no, no. I I meant to do it in these scenarios, not that scenario. And in many cases our recruits, uh, they have no context. They've never been to a fire. So that's one of the hardest challenges for training and instructors is to try and provide the context when your students don't have the experience you do. They don't have that slide deck in their head. Um, and in many ways, a lot of our more senior firefighters and fire officers uh, have a slide deck in their head, but haven't thought it through or don't understand that just because I did something one time and got a particular outcome, doesn't mean I'm going to get that outcome in a different scenario. So while Yes, no two fires are exactly the same. There's so much about them that is the same. And fire dynamics being one of those non-negotiable kind of things. It's the science of fire. Fire doesn't think. I mean, it can't, it's not like warfare where the fire says, oh, firefighters, I see what you're doing here. I'm gonna go ahead and move this direction because you're doing that and I'm gonna fight you. And it's that, 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 not real. Firefall fo- follows a set of physics it's gonna behave exactly how it's gonna behave. It's getting those firefighters all of those fire dynamics principles so that they can understand them. And what we've been on a mission to do at UL for over a decade is to do that in a simplified way without dumbing anything down, to provide as many visuals as possible. And that's really what it comes down to. Firefighters are visual learners. Uh, for the most part. So the more you can connect what they see with what they can't see, the, the better off we can be. And I know that that's where you and, and Darlie with uh, different AR, VR, augmented reality kind of tools, how do we get the best mix so that we can develop that learning in the most effective way possible?
0: yeah and I know developing that context and that experience is hard without actually doing it, and that is one advantage of VR of being able to put you in a contextual environment and, and get your heart rate up a little bit and, and get you in that environment so you can be prepared to take that action and and i did I liked how you mentioned i me just fire physics is it's physics. I mean, it's, it's almost like gravity. I mean, I, I it's hold, 100% this, pen, the same hold thing. this pen up to the air and I drop it and it's gonna fall. Uh, there's yeah. <laughs> there's no negotiating it. Yep,
1: but if I put you in space, that's a different context. So yep. it, yeah, so it's very similar. I mean, cause that, like you say, with the, the AR VR, it's, it's about context. So if you put the trainee and the instructor in the same environment, then there's no debating, what do you see? Well, we see the same thing. So I can now teach you based on what I see. So you're making the decisions that I'm making based on what I see. If we go ahead and make it hypothetical and say, oh, you're at a single story uh, ranch house on fire with fire coming from the AB corner. Well, there's still a lot of assumptions that need to be made there. There's a lot of dots that that maybe aren't the same as uh what you want to teach so when you create that environment that is identical um you're looking at the same thing learning the same things or passing on the the proper context
0: yep and it one one phrase you said earlier that ul is working on is simplifying some of this information in a way that's understandable but i think maybe sometimes the oversimplification of phrases is got us here this conversation today and, and another one i wanted to throw at you is that the, the The phrase i've heard and seen online is always attack a a burning building from the unburned side sure what's what are you what are your thoughts there
1: well another uh i mean we don't have time to get into the whole pushing fire debate and science and stuff like that but i mean this is another statement where uh in some cases it becomes a statement of convenience where uh yes you want to put the hose line between the people and the fire but in some cases, the best thing to do is to take the fire away, regardless of, of where it is or, or how long. I mean, it, it's all part of that system. And you'll have many firefighters, or I shouldn't say many, but interacting with many firefighters over my life. But uh, you'll have fire coming out of the front door of a house and their go-to is to take the hose line through the front door of the house but those will be the same people that say, well, no, you always attack from the unburned side. It's like, all right, well, in that case, you're gonna take the hose line around the back and come in the back door because that would be going from the unburned side to the burn side. And they'll be like, well, no, that would take longer. I wouldn't do that. So in many cases, they, they're contradicting themselves because they don't understand uh, what that statement really means.
0: Interesting, again, just sort of taking action without really thinking about it. And then also maybe once you start saying it out loud, realizing that it's actually maybe completely backwards and and ridiculous. (laughs) Or or it's a sometimes statement and and not an always or a never.
1: But if you don't give it with the context, the the young
0: impressionable firefighters are going to take it as always. I think it's that one. That one, uh, sometimes when, when you're asking someone for advice or, or whatever it may be, sometimes the answer is, is maybe. I mean, it, it's not always or never. It's, it depends. It's always it depends. And, yeah.
1: and I think that that's, that's where the conversations need to go. And, well, it depends on what. And you need to explain that. You, you need to go down some of those rabbit holes and that's what's so valuable to the students because the, and to anybody really, is then, then it allows you to think. Then it gets you thinking, all right, well, and in science it's, I mean, we, we try when we experiment with things to change one variable at a time. If you change one variable one variable at a time, you can get your arms around what's going on. And when you go ahead and change five things and you attribute it to one, you're wrong. I mean, it could have been any of those five or combinations therein that create the difference. And that's why firefighting is so hard is that no one has the global view of what's going on on a fire. So you could have an incident commander out front that maybe has the best view of what's going on. They're, they're out front. They can see, well, they see one or maybe two sides of the building. They don't see the second side or the third side. They don't see what's happening inside. And this is where you get things where, oh, we burnt the house down and I'm going to attribute it to something that I saw in the front of the house when the reality is it was the 10 things happening on the back of the house that you didn't see that maybe resulted in the bad outcome. Um, And that's why, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but that's why I think research is so important because that's when we can create that a complete view. I can put cameras on all sides. I can put thermal imaging on all sides. I can make measurements in every room so that we can actually understand if I go through the front door and I've got a house on fire, what does opening the front door mean to Mrs. Smith that's five rooms away in the back of the house in a bedroom? It matters. I mean, my action five rooms away could completely make a life and death change to Mrs. Smith on the other side of the house. But I would never know that because I'm not, I'm not there. So in many cases, over time, firefighters will make decisions that are best for what they see around them where they are, not knowing either the positive or the negative impact further away.
0: Well said. Yeah, again, just needing to... Maybe not necessarily see the whole picture, but know that there's a whole picture to to just um, know that it's bigger than what you, your eye sees in front of you, and that Absolutely. your actions have have a greater greater impact than just what than what the what you're doing in front of you. Yep. So a, another another phrase that I've seen quite a bit, and and in being involved within the sprinkler realm quite a bit, I've I've seen pushback from developers and builders and then you see stuff on movies where all of a sudden this the smoke alarm goes off and then all of a sudden 10 sprinkler heads go off and it's like a dance party in the gym and and i think there's a lot of misconceptions around sprinklers and two within the sprinkler phrase the context is one sprinklers that destroy property and then two if, if sprinklers go off they all go off what what's what's your thoughts on that
1: well, first off, sprinklers are probably one of the greatest life-saving inventions that have been created in the fire space ever. And uh, are they perfect? Absolutely not. But I mean, the data shows I mean, your, your chance of dying in a sprinkler home is incredibly reduced. I mean, I think Maryland, since they had the sprinkler law in place. I don't think they've had a person die in a sprinklered house uh, since the law went into effect. So um, without a doubt, they're tremendous. Now, certainly we have Hollywood to thank for the one go off, they all go off myth. I mean, there's any number of movies that show that. So what does the public think? I see it. Therefore it must be true. It's kind of like read something on social media. It's got to be true. Um, Again, these, these sad things that we create for ourselves, but you look at how a sprinkler activates, it's a thermally activated device uh, in a very intelligent design because you deliver the water where the water is needed. And the ones that are thermally activated are the ones that go off and deliver water, remove the plug and, and open up the orifice and allow water to flow to the fire.
0: And uh, yeah, Ho- hollywood really mess with us there. Yeah. I mean I can I've so many movies growing up where that that's what I thought until I all of a sudden gain some context into understanding actually there's, there's a heat activated bulb and a sprinkler head. And, and while I know there is still that fear of, Hey, Oh, if one goes off, there's all the water damage, but I know within a residential home, for example, there's a 250 to 300 gallon tank. So there's a limited amount of water that will be discharged from the orifice. Um, but really, I know in a lot of ways sprinklers are meant to design save lives, but also if you have a, you end up having a fire, at your house, the water that a fire department's gonna put on your house is gonna be a lot more than what the, the sprinkler is actually going to discharge. So in a lot of ways, it's probably gonna be a lot less water and fire damage.
1: But it's important that you look at the timeline. I mean, the timeline is critical. So if you have a fire in your home, let's say your sofa is on fire in your living room. That sofa is going to quickly generate enough heat, probably when the sofa is probably about a third to a half on fire, depending on where the sprinkler head is in relation to where the sofa sits, that single sprinkler head is going to go off and it's going to control the fire when it's still small. So it's not guaranteed to extinguish the fire, but it's meant to control the fire. So it's not gonna put the fire service out of business or anything like that. But So a lot of smoke gets generated, creates a very dangerous condition, creates enough heat to set the sprinkler head off but then that sprinkler head keeps that fire on that half of that sofa. And let's say it got underneath, maybe it gets to the whole sofa slowly versus, and that's happening within let's say one to three minutes. The other scenario is we wait for manual suppression. So the average response time of the fire service in the United States is is six plus minutes. And we know flashover can happen in less than four minutes. So uh, you don't have, it's not like the fire service is showing up to half a sofa on fire. The fire service is showing up to rooms on fire and probably multiple rooms on fire, depending if windows break or doors open um, is gonna determine how many rooms are on fire because there's plenty of fuel there. And it goes back to the oxygen we were talking about earlier. But, and then the fire service is gonna show up and flow 150 gallons per minute uh, into that space to control that fire. So not only is all your stuff burned, now it's soaked and the fire service is gonna potentially take thousands of gallons of water to control and overhaul your house. Um, So even if you take the water out of play, I mean, it's the, yeah, does, does the sprinkler create water damage? Absolutely. It's going to go off and it's going to flow water to control the fire. The, the alternative is everything is destroyed. Probably. Um, what's the, and the other adage is what do you, you can dry stuff out, but you can't unburn it. So throw, throw that out there for people that, that think water damage is an issue.
0: Well, that is, that is a true statement that I agree with. And maybe it's not always or never, but uh, sure. it's, very very true i
1: I will throw a counter in there is that when you start looking at say like a high-rise building and you get a fire on the top floor um yeah you can have cascading water impacts that go on several floors of the building and this is where i think firefighter training needs to improve is that firefighters need to be trained that uh how to operate with the sprinkler system i mean rarely did they get the opportunity to do that but sprinkler systems can be controlled locally through branch lines and local shutoffs that in many cases, if the fire service is on their game, they can really minimize that water damage. Once they confirm that that fire is under control and they do their searches, one of the next priorities should be to control that sprinkler system as locally as they can so that you limit that water damage.
0: again, I mean, if you're protecting lives, then you're protecting property. Yep. It's it, uh, again, coming back to context and thinking and, and, and I know from the sprinkler standpoint, there's, there's a lot of different players involved, but I think there's, there's a lot of science that shows from a residential standpoint, when you have these sprinklers in, like you said, your chance of perishing in a fire is a lot lower than if they weren't there. And, and I think it's, on. I've, heard work from like the home fire sprinkler coalition. They do a lot of work with trying to just show what it's like to be in a fire that's sprinklered versus unsprinklered. And I know it's it's quite scary to be in any fire, um, but the whole, whole point they're making is is having the sprinklers gives you enough time to get out alive. Um, so that's very much on a saving a life perspective. But then also obviously you make great gave great context on the timeline where I'd much rather have a immediate Proactive response from my fire sprinkler putting out the sofa as opposed to the reactive response from the fire service seven to ten minutes later. And and at that point, who who knows where the fire is going to be?
1: Yeah, fire's fast. And I think people don't appreciate how fast fire is. And that's something we need to get better at educating the public on. But I mean, if you get a flaming fire on a piece of upholstered furniture in your home, it is on you to get yourself out or to get a closed door between you and where the fire is, which comes to our Close Before You Doze campaign of, uh, I mean, the public is on their own. I mean, yeah, the fire service is going to come and save you. And there's some things that you can do, like closing doors, that will extend that timeline and make it more likely. But the reality is that fire is deadly before the fire department is going to get there at no fault of the fire department.
0: What is the close before you doze?
1: Okay, so I mean this is a public education campaign that uh, ULFSRI launched think, six years ago, where we're trying to educate the public in how fast fire is and the importance of closed doors in the case of a fire. So for the reasons we just stated, it's uh, if the fire can go to flashover in three to four minutes, and the fire department is not going to be there in three to four minutes, you either have to get yourself out of your house and call 911 for help uh, to have your house manually suppressed. Or um, if you can't get out, the most important thing you can possibly do is get a closed door between you and the fire or multiple closed doors between you and the fire. It cuts off the oxygen supply to the fire, keeps it smaller and buys you that vital time that you need to get to that six, seven, eight, nine, 10 minute mark so that the fire department has time to rescue you, and you keep yourself in a tenable environment. The oxygen stays higher, the temperatures stay down, and your chance of survivability goes up dramatically. And this is something we saw in our research for the last 10 plus years that we feel is really important to pass on to the public. And I mean, one of the most important pieces of this doesn't cost anything. It's just a behavioral change. It's just an education point. So you don't have to go out and buy anything. Um, should you have working smoke alarms on every level of your home inside and outside bedrooms? Yes. Incredibly life-saving device. Um, if you can afford sprinklers, should you have sprinklers? Yes. Um, but closing a bedroom door as part of your escape plan is, is critical to survivability. And there's a lot of efforts now that they're trying to quantify how many firefighter rescues uh, happen every year. And they're showing that there's, there is a lot of of people that get rescued by the fire department. And one of those teams that's persistent is that they're being rescued from behind closed doors in many cases, because if that door
0: was open, they probably wouldn't be viable in some scenarios. And I like that of looking at fire science data and, and pushing it out to the public. And it's very much an educational behavioral change and, um, I'm sure there's there's plenty of other things, but great. I'll, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes because I think that's just a such a simple thing that we can all do to to better protect ourselves and our families.
1: Yep, closeyourdoor.org is the website
0: we created. Thank you for that. Um, so one one final one, and it I was going to bring it up before the f- close before you doze, but you talked about fire being fast, and and a lot of times we're talking about fires. In, in the United States or Europe or the, the quote-unquote Western world, developed worlds. But oftentimes we don't really talk too much about water or excuse me, fire in the quote-unquote developing worlds or just the global South. And you think about some of these countries that have large slum settlements or large dwellings of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people living in shanties or kind of uh, informal settlements. And I've seen terrible stories of fires happening there, and this whole concept of fire equity, and and does fire discriminate? So when you when you hear fire equity, or or does fire discriminate? What what comes to the top of the mind for you? Yeah, I mean,
1: we have uh, we lack a lot of data to truly understand what the fire problem is in the developing world. However, there is a lot of case studies and data is getting better where where we learn. But if you look at just the United States itself, I mean, does the fire discriminate? Well, yeah, the elderly and the young uh, are disproportionately affected by fire. Um, Whether it's how quickly they can move, whether or not they can move at all, and, and things like that leave those pieces of our population incredibly vulnerable. Um, as you look at the slum fires and things like that, you could have hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, the, the people's living conditions impacted. And I mean, go back to the great Chicago fire. I mean, we, we learned that if you build everything out of combustible materials and you have no separations, that it almost becomes impossible for the fire department to catch up to it. And you wind up with these out of control fires that take out entire cities well, there's no building codes in an informal settlement. Um, So there's no separation distances that they're adhering to or materials that they use. Um, So they don't have the benefit of the lessons we've learned from building codes. Um, So I think there's a lot to be learned there. I mean, there's things that we need to study. Uh, Some studies have been started and and shown some, some early possible lessons learned that could be implemented in in these types of environments. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there is a fire equity issue around the world. And I think that again, there's, there's research that can be done to impact or figure out what those solutions can be. Um, because we're not going to, I mean, solve the, uh, inequity of, of money distribution around the world very Mm -hmm. quickly, but there are things we can do in the meantime to help impact it.
0: Well, one, one thing you said earlier, it is, it's just like how fire is like gravity. Fire, fire is just going to do what fire does. Um, but is it more the, the environments or the hazards that various people live in or certain, certain aspects of population they're in that causes that fire inequity? Or could, what, what, would, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's uh, many factors. Um, I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is that uh, light I mean, people need light in order to, to live and, uh, and read and study and things along those lines. And uh, we take it for granted that we can flip a switch and lights come on and we can do whatever we need to do to live. In many parts of the world, they don't have electricity, uh, so they rely upon open flames. And we see what can happen when you take an open flame and put it in a combustible environment and something gets knocked over. Uh, what could be a candle that a child is using to read uh, in an informal settlement could turn into an accidental uh, entire community on fire in a short period of time, particularly if there's a wind or, or something like that. So it's it's amazing how uh, those hazards exist and exist in many places.
0: Yeah, not, not something that many people think about but yeah i mean not having to to burn a fire to to stay warm or to for light i mean i i live in the apartment here in chicago and i've got my thermostat behind me and i've got my light switch and i don't even think about that but if you're not living on a centralized grid where you don't have consistent uh heating and cooling to provide the comforts i mean you you kind of it's a, a little bit more of a just like a kind of caveman, sort of, sort of more of our mam mamm mammalistic uh, tendencies of like, just hey, how do we, how do you stay warm? You put it on the fire. You know, how do you, how do you have light? You know, you put it on the fire. Uh, we use fire for so many of these things, but and and now that a lot of times it's the Western world, developing world, and a lot of places, just use electricity and lights and 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 heating systems where we don't think about it. But I, it's. It's an interesting topic to, to explore about how can we apply some simple fire technologies to support some of those struggling with access or fire inequalities around the world. And I, you know, one that, one that comes to mind, I know we mentioned earlier, was just like that smart Bluetooth connected fire alarm to where it just, if you, there's a fire going on with your neighbor 100 yards down that way, all of a sudden you're notified just because how fast the fire is, you all of a sudden can know if your neighbor is having a fire so you can actually take action. So I think I'm interested in simple technologies like that for the quote unquote developing world um, to help reduce some of the fire inequalities that do exist.
1: Early warning is incredibly important. And it doesn't matter where in the world you are. I mean, you've got uh, early detection, early warning, hopefully early suppression and if all of those fail, then you're worried about compartmentation or passive fire resistance. And then you're relying on your fire department. It's kind of that, that wheel of fire protection that the, it starts with education and prevention and then works its way around and ends with the fire service. And there's anything we can do in the middle there is, is gonna be better and, and stop that fire sooner.
0: Yep, well said. Well, Steven, any, uh, any final, final thoughts? One, one thing I maybe asked you before, but I always like to kind of ask it from uh, the podcast is, is something that, that is top of mind for you right now that you're, you're maybe most excited about or something on the flip side that, that, uh, that keeps you up at night that you're, you're terrified about?
1: <laughs> oh, many of those. Um, <laughs> I think overall, there's just a, a huge level of excitement with, with our team. Um, our board of trustees has asked us to do more and is giving us more resources to do more. So we've got, I think seven open job positions right now that we've got posted. So if you are a research engineer a research scientist, um, that has an interest in fire, or you want to join our amplification team, uh, where we get those messages out. So if you've got media design expertise, and uh or management expertise in communications and marketing uh that's what we're looking at right now to grow our team uh, so we can get that balance of discover things and get those discoveries out to the people that they need to go to, to to save lives and advance fire safety
0: fantastic well steve always a pleasure and an honor to to talk shop with you i really enjoy it and um you know, we'll definitely make sure to put all the links in here and i want to thank you on behalf of the smart firefighting community darley and the, and just the, the the world for the the research you're doing around fire safety i really appreciate it my pleasure always fun talking with you again thanks steve we'll talk soon